You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And this program is about a letter to the New York Times agreeing that a recent Times article correctly indicates that families have changed in America, but our workplaces have not, and that we may now have a 21st century workforce laboring in a 20th century workplace. But psychologist Kathleen Christensen, who wrote that letter, and is director of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Working Loaner Program, also argues that what the article didn't note is that having children is just a slice of time for people who will live well into their 80s and 90s and plan to have productive work lives at least until their 70s. The notion that people have to have made it by their mid to late 40s the ages that collide dramatically with the child-raising ages, is archaic, she writes, concluding that many parents, men and women alike, will be ready to lean in in their 50s and 60s, but just might not want to or be able to do so in their 30s and 40s. And so I would ask Dr. Christensen, what indication there is that the American workplace will ever accommodate itself to such a friendly family pattern? <laughs> well, I think the, the major indication is that it is in their own best interest. We, uh, we have employers? employers' best interest. And the reason I say that is that we are living through a major societal shift, demographically and socially. Uh, as you know, people are living longer. They are living healthier for longer portions of their life, and they're working longer. They're working into their 70s and not retiring at the age in which they, they conventionally did. Um, and parents are no longer mono-focused. They're not showing up at the workplace and only focused on work. They don't have someone at home to take care of the home or the kids, so almost every working parent is dual-focused. They come to work, and they're focused on their job, and they're focused on their family. So the workforce has changed dramatically, and employers recognize that if they're going to get the best talent, to recruit the best talent, to retain the best talent, they're going to have to understand the nature of their workforce. But it's a slow process, and some firms are doing it, but many firms are slow to understand it, particularly with regard to the aging of the workforce. Why is that? I would think that's what they would understand uh, best and most of all, because they see that aging right in front of them. Well, again, as you noted, it is really a 20th century workforce, and the conventional norms of the 20th century workforce was that people would retire, that they would age gracefully out of the workplace, and not be staying on. And so that is the, the normative structure that many employers still hold. I, mean, I sat in a meeting with the senior comps and benefits people in human resources of Fortune 500 companies, and they were quite candid. The issue of the aging workforce was not yet on their radar screen. And about a third in a global survey of business executives indicate that they are slow to adapt to, to the aging of the workforce. So I think the fact is, is 
they are, there are so many other pressing needs employers face that the issue of the aging workforce is a process and they are only beginning to, to come to terms with it, to understand it. Uh, Europe is another story. In Europe and particularly in Germany because demographically their, their, their society has aged uh, faster than ours has. Uh, they're asking the question, how do we retain the older workers? How can we ensure that they are, they can maximize their performance and they stay in the workforce? We're not yet in, in a situation in our country to be, uh, to be you know, facing that, and employers are not yet facing it. Well, I, I began the program by talking that my last words were about a friendly family. Right. It's really family friendly. It, it's, I wonder why you say because it's in their best interest, yeah. better interest. But I thought that um, in economic circles, one assumed that the, the, the manager does what's best for him. Yeah. In the um, devil take the high nose of most philosophy, I do what's best for me. And I don't quite understand the psychology, if you will forgive me, of not recognizing it except so slowly. You know, <clears throat> I think there is a profound poverty of imagination. Poverty of imagination. Yeah, that uh, you don't, rec you know, you don't recognize something, you don't work to fix it until you know it's broken. And for many firms, it's not yet broken. They've been able to work with the workforce that they've got um, and particularly in the recent uh, Great Recession, people were afraid to move. If they had a job, they were going to keep a job. Uh, many of the firms that are foresighted are now recognizing that as this economy picks up, that they may start losing some of their best people. People who stayed because they feared that they might not get another job are now going to start actively looking and when they feel that there is uh, that there might be opportunities. And I think when that starts happening, then the companies will realize that it's really in their best interest. Um, some, as I indicated, have already done that. I, I look into a firm like Deloitte, where they recognize that the workforce that they've got today, um, more female, more working parents, is not going to necessarily want to follow the, the strict, straight-line trajectory of traditional career paths. And so they have really introduced something they call mass career customization, where the career path is a matrix. It's not a ladder. And it recognizes that people over the course of their lives may not want to go just straight up from their 20s to their 60s or 70s, but may need to plateau, may need to dip, may need to take time out from their careers. So they have created really a, a template for a career path that allows people to dial up or dial down in terms of intensity and travel and responsibilities, recognizing that over the long term, people will be better engaged, be better performers if the expectations better match, the career expectations better match also the, their life course needs. Well, you use the expression that we've heard so often, the lean up. Yeah, yeah. You, you really do feel that there will be an increasingly substantial number of people who will want to pay attention to the family right. responsibilities right. in their 30s and 40s and then really want to make it when they get older than that. Well, I think, I think one of the most important 
things right now is there is no single model. And so that uh, what, in, and if we use the economic notion of supply and demand, the labor supply is quite variegated. So what we see is that many women would like the opportunity to perhaps plateau when their children are younger. And then as their children get older, really lean in. The demand side, the employer side, is not yet there. there is, with the exception of some firms like Deloitte that recognize there can be variegated career paths, most firms haven't recognized that. But from the supply side, there's no question that there are many women and many men who are ready to pick up steam in their 50s or 60s, but the workplace isn't really ready to to address that or accommodate that. You say there is some indication. Have you done an, an analysis of what kinds of corporations in what areas are, are the ones who are recognizing this potential new pattern? Um, we are in the process of, of supporting a great deal of research. So we're in the process of trying to understand not just industry or profession, but actual job characteristics, job conditions that would allow people to stay more fully engaged in the, the workforce over longer periods of time. Um, you know, those work conditions could be staying with the same firm, but changing the job, perhaps changing the job to a lower stress one. So in that case, not wanting to lean in, but wanting to stay engaged, but not necessarily in the same high demand position. It could be a job that, in fact, um, in the factory plant in Germany, they found just changing the, the timing of a belt could keep people performing at, at you know, the maximum level. And that meant changing the timing of a, of a conveyor belt by seconds, not by even full, fully minutes. Um, it could also be changing the time and timing of work so that people have more control over when they work. They may not necessarily want to work full time. They might want to work part year or part time. And interestingly enough, again from Germany and a German think tank, what they found trumped all the other work conditions was uh, having people work on mixed age teams. So not having an age segregated team doing the work, you know, older workers working in this, on this project, younger workers working on this one, but rather a team that mixes ages up. That was, in the case of this, of this German study, the most effective way to keep older people engaged in the workplace. Do public employees make up the largest uh, contingent of workers in our country? I, you know, that's a very good question. I don't think they make up the largest. I think they certainly make up one of the most significant. Um, and, and in many cases, the public sector, the federal government, has led the way, at least with regard to one type of work condition, which is flexibility. So that the federal government was the first to really institute in the 70s a major flex time program. And the federal government in the 90s, and again now, has been implementing telecommuting, the ability to work at home or remotely um, instead of coming into the office every day. Has telecommuting proven to be a major factor in this reorganization? You know, it's it's not a there's not a simple answer to that. Um, the fact is is that telecommuting works best when someone can work remotely one or two days a week. It is not an arrangement that works best from either the firm's perspective or the employee's perspective if it's five days a week 
week in, week out. Um, the firm, the employer wants to see the, the employee, and the employee wants to be engaged. And so uh, the best arrangement with telecommuting is typically informally, and it's typically on, on a part-week basis, one to two days a week. You say informally. Uh, that puzzles me. Because I think, you That's know... It's sort I, of a catch and as catch can. Well, it, it, it is a... It's a, a troubling notion because it's, it creates special deals mm -hmm. and, and that can create inequities. But when you said earlier on, Dick, about, well, a family friendly, I think what we're really addressing is, is the fact that we are living through the, what is the equivalent of the Industrial Revolution. There is a major change, not just in the workforce, there's a major change in the demands of work. We're a global economy, we have all sorts of advanced technology which allow people not just to work anytime, anyplace, but all the time, every place. And we have people, you know, trying to manage all the different demands of the job and their families at all stages of the life course. So, we are living through a major change in the way work is organized across time and space and the way the workforce has changed. But we haven't yet come to recognize it. I think we will look back in 20 or 30 years and see this time period as really the equivalent of an industrial revolution. But we're in a serious lag period right now where the demands on workers are changing. You work in a, a firm that that has you know a global client base or a global um, you know workforce, and you may be taking calls at all hours of the day or night. But in many of these firms, you're still expected to show up because the the, the normative structure of the workplace is still the industrial model. It's you know you got to be present, you got to show up. So. We're living through this, this leg where the workforce has changed, the demands are changed, the technology is facilitating those changes, but the expectations on where work is done and when it is done and even how it's done has not yet changed. Does, uh, does this description make you feel, well, there's less reason for you to feel it than for me to feel it. Feel as I do, uh, I'm glad I'm not young anymore. I think it's really hard. Um, I, I, you know, I want to be. I want to be hopeful, but I see the toll it's taking on on the American workers. And we did fund a great deal of research on what was happening within the American family. And what came out very clearly is the degree to which working parents felt that they w experienced a real-time famine, and they felt they were being squeezed. They felt they didn't, they they weren't able to be the kind of parent they wanted, and they weren't able to be the kind of worker they wanted. And they felt they felt they were constantly having to face false choices. That you know, it didn't have to be like that. And I think very clearly of one woman who was in tears when she told me that. You know, she, she worked at a nursing home. She had to be there at a certain time every morning. She was a single mother, and she would take her sons, and she'd put them on a public bus every morning, and they were seven and five years old, and they would go by themselves to school because if she was five minutes late getting to her work, which was in the opposite direction, she would get docked. And then if she got docked a certain number of times, she would be fired, and she could not afford to be fired. Now, that was a false choice. You know, there was no reason why a scheduling plan couldn't have been developed, and many firms are doing this, whereby 
She could have come in a little bit later and worked a little bit later. And that's where there's a poverty of imagination. That's where there's not really looking at what the demands of the jobs are and what the, the, the demands on the workers are and trying to find that sweet spot where both needs can be met. You talk about uh, different patterns, uh, more progressive patterns abroad, and you single out Germany. Explain it. Well, again, uh, there are fundamental difference between, differences between many of the European nations and, and the United States. One, they have a much more elaborated, um, uh, much more detailed social, um, uh, social cushion in effect. Um, they've got laws that provide for leaves and uh, provide for people to work various hours, um, not just Germany, but the UK has what's called a right to request law. Um, so they've got a very different, uh, you know, policy uh, support system. They also have, in many cases, a different uh, level of unionization of, rep you know, of, of, of efforts to represent workers. What? But spell that out. A, a much more powerful union structure. Yes, they've got a power in many of the, the European countries, not all of them, but they do have a more powerful union structure. So, and in our country, as we know, that the unions, uh, you know, union membership has really decreased over the last uh, several decades. So, what you have is a different framework in which um, employers operate. And that creates many constraints on employers, and, and many employers in the U.S. are happy not to have those constraints. But what it has created, at least in, in um, many of the nations, is uh, a framework in which um, work is treated in a different way, that, you know, that, that workers can take a leave if there's a paid leave, if there is a sickness. They can negotiate flexibility without penalty or stigma. Um, in the U.S., we have much more of a, a sense of a voluntary employer adoption of these arrangements. And in some cases and in some firms, that's working well. I mean, we, we have supported the Sloan Awards for business effectiveness and flexibility, and over 4,000 companies have applied for that, and over 2,000 have won that award. And these are companies that are recognized for their own recognition that they are adopting practices, and sometimes they're policies, and sometimes they're practices, they're not necessarily policies, that, that allow people to have more control over when and where they work, and they feel it's in their best interest. They have a more highly engaged workforce, which translates into a more productive workforce. Um, they reduce their costs on, on absenteeism, and they reduce their, their costs on recruitment because their attrition rates go down. So in those cases, those firms, without the kind of legislative framework that much of the European nations have, those firms have recognized that it is in their best interest to, to really rethink how and where work is done. You, you talk about the um, greatest strength of unions abroad. Uh, that seems to be a movement so contrary to yes. our own. Yeah. Uh, do you see any changes in that pattern? And do you see any changes in the workplace thinking if there are not changes in the strengths of unions? Well, I mean, I'm not an expert on what the, the unions are doing. From what I, what I see and, and read, it appears that they are rethinking more affiliate membership structures so that, that they don't necessarily 
um, organize workers in the way they and represent them in the way they have. But there's an affiliate structure so that people can take advantage of the strength of the unions, um, uh, particularly in their buying power for insurance or, or mm -hmm. other benefits. Um, again, I think that th there is no easy answer to that. That that employees are particularly as the economy picks up, are going to either be voting with their feet or be more vocal about the fact that it is really hard to do the work that's expected today. And again, I'm generalizing, and it is so, so character, you know, what we really have to do is pay attention to the industry and the occupation and, and you know, the, the regional nature of the work, too. So it's hard to just generalize. But but it is clear that, that many employees are having a very difficult time. They want to do their best. They want to, to feel they're as productive as possible. But they are try they're also trying to figure out how it is that they can, they can be that way. Kathy, is there any indication that um, creating a 21st century workplace for 21st century families is becoming a political issue? I have been amazed at the degree to which it's not a political mm -hmm. issue. I, I really have been amazed. Um, you know, the, the demographics started shifting in the 80s with women uh, entering and staying in the workplace, mothers staying in the workplace. Um, the workforce trend towards early retirement started reversing itself in the mid-90s. And here we are at 2013, and our society still is not addressing these issues as if they are public social issues. And our politicians are not talking about these issues publicly. And, and I, I, you know, I, I marvel at that with, with great disappointment. And, you know, I think, why is that the case? And I think partially it's because we as a society have grown up with the notion of a public sphere, which is work, and it's, you know, the economy, and it's war, and a private sphere, which is the family and children and, and all. And therefore, I think for, for many people, there is this desire to keep the private private. And they're concerned that if they do go too public, excuse me, if they do go too public with it, it's going to put themselves at a disadvantage. And so what is really needed is a profound shift where we begin to take what has been private and recognize that if millions of people have these private challenges and these private problems, we've got a whopping social issue that needs public attention. And I would hope in the next presidential election and certainly more of the state senate elections that the issues that face working families across the life course, and it's not just when people have children, um, but that these issues really get addressed and we publicly start discussing what are the public responsibilities to ensuring that families can function as well as they can as families, that older people have as many opportunities in the workplace as younger people. Um, and that, that to me is, is something that I really hope happens in the next four to six years. Geographically, are there places in the United States where your wish and my wish, and I would think any thoughtful person's wish that the right. public and private come together this right. way right. is happening. Well, 
in, in small ways. Um, the state of California and the state of New Jersey both have paid family leave. And those are the only two states that actually have paid family leave and are functioning to pay it. The state of Washington has adopted legislation but has not yet had the mechanism for paying it. Um, in those cases, it became a public social issue. But in, in other ways, I don't, you know, I think that there have been a number of movements at municipal levels to adopt paid sick days. But what working families need is, yes, certainly the ability to take time off from work through, the, through paid sick days or paid leave, but they need to have more ability to have flexibility and control over their work when they're at work. And that has yet to become... What do you mean as, while they're at work? Well, the thing is, is you know, a person wants to work full time. Mm. And the convention is they show up at 9 and they leave at 5, or they show up at 8, they leave at 4. Well, that might not work in all cases. Maybe they need to take a break in the middle of the day to take their spouse, spouse to the doctor. Maybe they need to come in a half hour later because the plumber will only come during conventional work hours. Um, maybe, that happened. Yes, I know, and it affects everyone. Um, maybe as the woman who worked in the, you know, the nursing home found if she could just have another 20 minutes, she could take her ch children to school and get to work and be on time. So these are all people who, these are all examples of people who want to work and who are, in, and are working full time. But the fact is, if they just had more ability to control when they might work over the course of a day or when they might work over the course of the week within the bounds of the firm, then everyone else would benefit. I mean, what we do know from a national survey that Families uh, and Work Institute recently did was that um, that kind of flex time is increasing, um, the ability to have more control over hours. Um, but uh, other kinds of, of flexibility that require the firm paying, such as paid sick days or paid leave, is actually declining. Kathy Christensen, I'm so pleased that you were willing to come and talk about this subject today because it's obviously so important for us all. Thank you again for joining me on The Open Mind. Thank you. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. And meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation, the Bluestein Family Foundation, the Joan Gans Cooney and Peter G. Peterson Fund, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Malkin Fund, the May and Samuel Rudin Family Foundation, 
the Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.